All right, I want to start off uh, just to kind of prompt as we get into John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is actually a fairly well-known passage, even for people that don't necessarily grow up in the church. Uh, This story of the woman at the well has made its way into culture. It's It's a story that people often hear first, maybe even before they hear other stories about Jesus. And it's become this... Uh, kind of important story to understand who the gospel goes out to. There are two major parts of this story that we'll be in. It's a long section. It's 45 verses that we're going to be going through, but it really is one story that kind of flows together. But there are two major sections to this. The first section deals with the woman herself and the various roadblocks that she puts up to the gospel. And with that, I do want to encourage you to be thinking, just in your own self, what are your roadblocks? Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm already a follower of Jesus. All my roadblocks have been cleared. But the reality is, all of us have roadblocks on the way to being fully devoted followers of Jesus who've given our lives completely to him. For a lot of us, our our spirituality or our pursuit of Jesus is limited to our Sunday morning gatherings, our attendance, our, our connection here. Or maybe it's a a little bit of a historical thing where it's like, yeah, well, I did. I gave my life to Jesus. But the ongoing nature of it is a little bit limited. We all have roadblocks of what it might look like to live fully submitted to the Spirit of God. How we could walk in complete and humble obedience to Jesus. Those those are there. And so I want you to be thinking of those. What, What would keep you from giving yourself completely to God and walking in humble obedience to him? The second part of the passage actually deals with then how we can relate to God. And Jesus is absolutely transforming the thinking of how people relate to God. And the reality is he is still transforming the thinking of how people relate to God. And it is critical that we hear and understand what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to tell you this for accountability purposes. I really want to bring in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, and I don't know when to do it. I didn't know if I should start with it or if I should finish with it, but it's so important to understand. But I think even as I'm saying it now, I want to finish with it. So if I'm getting ready to wrap up the sermon and I haven't circled back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, uh, just, I don't know, throw something at me because it's really important that we grasp the, uh, the where this goes how deep and how rich the words of Jesus are and how far they take us. So as we get into John chapter 4, there's uh, there's a lot of context, but there's one thing that you you need to hold in your head, and that's the conversation that we dealt with two weeks ago where Jesus met with a man named Nicodemus. Now, if you remember, if you were with us in John chapter 3, Jesus, or sorry, John describes Nicodemus as a Pharisee, A man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was a religious leader, he was a cultural leader, and he was a political leader. He was the unique blend of all of these things. He fully and completely represented Israel, and he came to Jesus, and Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And this was very startling information for Nicodemus to receive. For Nicodemus, a Jewish person, the kingdom of God was already theirs. And Jesus is saying, actually, no, there is is more to the story. 
Unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and spirit, there is a spiritual life, not just the flesh, not just the family that you were born into, but there is a spiritual transformation that needs to take place for everybody to experience the kingdom of God. There's something that needs to happen inside of you. That's why so often, if you've been around Christians for any length of time, you might hear the phrase that it's a a relationship, not a religion, trying to distance ourselves from religiosity or a practice of simply going to church and trying to get some kind of need met by going to church. And we just try and distance ourselves from that as much as possible and say that that was never what this was about. That was never the story of the gospel to try and get you to show up on a Sunday morning, not even remotely close. But one of the things that Jesus says to Nicodemus is he's kind of taken this representative of Israel who believes that Israel has the keys to the kingdom of God, and he starts to expand Nicodemus's understanding by saying that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And that phrase, whoever, is designed to be expansive. It's designed to go out big. Anybody, anywhere in this big, wide world, anybody that believes in Jesus will not perish. And so he's just kind of throwing off just the, the maybe the limiters of who Israel might have seen as in versus out. And Jesus is expanding it so big to say literally any human being that puts their faith in Jesus will experience life and life eternal and life abundant anybody. Now, John, I told you this last week, that John's writing a very curated version of the gospel. He is walking you through a story on purpose. This is not designed to be just the the facts. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and the end. That's not John's writing. He's told us that at the end, John 20, 31. I'm writing these things so that you will believe. My whole goal and intent is that every word that I wrote to you would catapult you into belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he's telling us this story under the full hope that as you read it, you will start to see just how stretchy, just how big and expansive that whoever from John chapter 3, verse 16 actually is, whoever believes in him. And John says, watch this. You want to see how big the gospel is? Watch this. So this is John chapter 4. We are going to read through the whole thing, and we're not going to be able to hit every verse, but I want you to hear the full story in its entirety. It'll take us a minute to read through it, but you can follow along. This is John chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He's going from the south to the north. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Then we have this parenthesis from John, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, he's writing mostly to people that are not Jewish, and he's trying to fill them in on a little detail. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said to me is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. All right, as a big section with lots in it, there's probably about a hundred ways that we could go with our time together today. So I'm going to try and just pick a couple of them and bring just a sense of understanding and ultimately 
I want to compel you to a different kind of relationship with God. That's what I'm hoping to see happen through this passage. All right, so a little bit of the setting, just to give you an idea. Uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast. He turned over some tables. He dumped out the money jars. He met with Nicodemus. It was a really successful trip to Jerusalem. And then he starts to leave to go back towards Judea, and he goes down to the Jordan River and finds water and starts baptizing. And that was last week's passage where John the Baptist's followers get a little bit jealous about so many people going to Jesus, and John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus starts to get word that the Pharisees are upset about the ministry that he's doing, and he knows that it's time to move on, and so he gets ready to go back up to Galilee, back to his home where they did most of their ministry up in northern Israel on the Sea of Galilee. And then the text tells us this. He had to go through Samaria. Here's the thing with uh, Jewish people. So the Samaritans, just to give you an idea, big history, uh, years and years and years before, uh, when Israel had been taken in exile to Babylon, there were a group of people that stayed back, and they started to intermarry with the Assyrians. And that group of people, they started to take on a different type of religion, and the Samaritans had this Uh, this different way of worshiping, this different type of religion. They even built a different temple, but it had extremely similar roots to Judaism. They believed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they would read those and they would hold to them. And they believed that worship happened on Mount Gerizim and they built a temple there and they disagreed with the Jews that Jerusalem was where the temple should be built and they disagreed with the Jews that the prophets and the, the wisdom literature was a part of the scriptures. So there's like common roots, but they really did believe different things. The Jews did not like the Samaritans because of their betrayal, because of the way that they stayed back when, the, uh, when Israel went into exile, and instead of holding fast to their beliefs, they started to intermarry, they started to incorporate into a different way of life, and so they became a very unclean people group. And you start to see these stories throughout the Bible about Samaritans as this picture of the ultimate opposite of Israel even more than the Gentiles because they were originally a part of Israel, but then they branched off. And so there's this sense of you left us, you betrayed us. And so Jews would theoretically have to walk through Samaria to get north to south. You have Judea, I'm sorry, Judea is in the south where Jerusalem is. You have Galilee in the north and there's this big region, still a part of the nation of Israel, but this huge region called Samaria right in the middle. But Jews even though John said they had to go through Samaria, they usually didn't go through Samaria. They would go out across the Jordan and up the east side of Israel, or they would go the coastal route, go catch PCH, and hit that north up through Tel Aviv and then head over to uh, Galilee. Those were the two routes that they would go. They would not go through Samaria. And so when John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it is a different kind of had to. There was a divine appointment that needed to be met. That is the only reason that Jesus went through Samaria was to go and meet this woman. But he had to go and meet this woman. This was God's purpose for him. And he does what the father tells him. And this is where the father told him to go. 
So he goes to this well, they find a well, and they sit down, and just imagine the disciples, I don't know, uh, maybe you kind of grew up in like a, a Christian setting, maybe even like a legalistic setting, and then your work takes you to Vegas for a conference, and you're walking down the strip like this, trying not to touch anybody or anything, feeling very out of place. I imagine that's what the disciples felt like walking through Samaria, just feeling completely and totally sinful for just being in Samaria. Jesus, their rabbi, is taking them into this place that they are not supposed supposed to go at all. They've been taught their entire lives to stay away from this place. And Jesus is saying, yep, this is where we're going. Come on, boys, let's, let's roll. And then he sits down at a well because he's tired and it's noon. And the disciples go into town to get food. Again, very much not the way that a Jew would interact with a Samaritan to go and get food that was unclean to eat. Also kind of funny that it took 12 of them to go into town to get food. It just, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. Again, a divine appointment. 13 guys walking around, and Jesus sits down on the well, and the 12 guys are like, we'll all go get the food, and they leave Jesus totally and completely alone. Again, very much a divine appointment. So in this situation, the the woman walks up, and there's so many things to this scenario. Uh, Typically, getting water was a community effort. The women would go together. They would all get their buckets. Usually in the morning, 7, 8, 9 in the morning, they would load up and go down to the well, and they would load up with the water for the day. It was a very social time, something that they would do as a community. But this woman is going at noon, not in the morning. Everything about this woman says, even from the Samaritans, she was an outcast. The Samaritans, according to the Jews, were an outcast people. They were an unclean people. And this woman was an outcast of the Samaritan people. You can just picture the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. Whoever believes in me will not perish. Anybody. Anybody that believes in me. And John says, okay, let's, let's test the bounds of whoever. Jesus sitting alone at a well, and a Samaritan woman comes up to him. Now, typical Jewish behavior, and I don't know this, I'm filling in the gaps, but I would imagine it's something like Jesus sees the Samaritan woman walking up to the well. Typical Jewish behavior would be to stand up and walk away, give her clearance, not be anywhere near her, not, uh, not force her to not be able to get her water, but... Just don't get unclean. Don't be in a compromising situation. Jesus goes the other route. Hey, what would you say about giving me a drink? The talking to her, the asking for water from an unclean well, and the readiness to drink out of an unclean bucket. Again, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around these things. But everything about what Jesus is doing is crossing every possible line It's kind of a weird thing to read about. But Jesus is essentially just bulldozing through some some Jewish strongholds, some things that had been in place. And Jesus is just forging a different way through. So he says, hey, give me a drink. And the woman says to him, how is it? She knows the rules. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's like, I know who I am, and I know who you are. You shouldn't even be here, let alone asking me for water. This is an inappropriate conversation. Don't you need to go somewhere else or do something else? 
Can we stop this right now? This woman does not want this interaction, and she doesn't believe that it's appropriate that Jesus is asking her this. Jesus responds to her, and she says that, hey, don't you know you're not supposed to be talking to me? And he says this. (laughs) If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. I want you to hear just real quickly that as this situation is happening, this woman says, okay, why are you asking me for this? And Jesus says, actually, if you knew who I was, (laughs) who I am, if you knew anything about me, if you knew the storyline that was leading to this moment, you would be asking me and I would be offering you living water. He just completely turns it around on her. It's entirely confusing to her. The conversational pace is a little bit unsettling to this woman. And also the very words Jesus throws at her, he says, actually, I'm kind of a big deal. If you knew who I am, who I represent, if you knew the gift of God, you would be asking and I would be giving you living water. Now, this is very similar to the Nicodemus conversation because with Nicodemus, Jesus talks about things on like a a spiritual, physical level, sort of like a fork in the road, and both times Nicodemus goes physical. Jesus says, you must be born again, and he says, how can somebody climb back into their mother's womb? Okay, no, we're talking about something totally different. Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me, and I would be giving you living water, and she says, this is a very deep well. How do you anticipate getting me that water? You don't even have a bucket. This whole scenario doesn't make sense at all. And she goes on. She says this. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now the short answer to that question is yes. I am greater than your father Jacob. We will learn in time that Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Abraham, and yes, greater than Jacob. Jesus is the destination of all of their lives. Everything that the entire Bible has been sculpting and crafting for thousands of years points to Jesus. So actually, yes, I am greater than your father, Jacob, but she She's still trying to understand this. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's going back to roots. She's going back to something comfortable, something that she can wrap her head around. We don't need your water. We have the water that God gave us through Jacob when he dug this well. Now we're getting to the roadblocks. I hope you hear this right now, whether you are a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to speak to you and invite you to experience something totally different. What God wants to do with you is take you deeper and deeper and deeper in your relationship to him. Every single one of you. There is not one of you here under this tent or outside in this parking lot that God does not want to arrest completely and draw you into a fiery relationship with him, filled by his spirit, living a vibrant, missional, passionate, worship-filled life today. He wants that for you. And many of us want that from him. That's why we're even here. 
I believe that there's something bigger than me. I believe that there's more to the story than what I can conjure up from within. I need what God has to light this soul on fire and live a life of meaning and purpose. I need what he has to do what he offers. But there are things that either we don't understand or that we intentionally put in the way that are preventing God from doing more and more and more and more with us. In fact, Ephesians even says, not even the passage that I can't wait to get back to, but a different passage says that God wants to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. So she takes it back to the physical and says, okay, well, we have water already. Whatever it is that you're offering, I don't even know that I need it because I have a well that Jacob gave us. And this well has been providing water for our people for over a thousand years. So I think we're doing just fine, Jesus. Thank you. Jesus says this about her well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so we just entered a place where Jesus is going that is not physical at all. Because he's saying this, he's kind of mixing up his metaphors just a little bit. He says, I have water that when you drink it, that water goes in and it creates something inside you that is now a wellspring that produces water. So this is a different kind of water that I'm talking about. It's not like this well that when you drink it, just like biology, we get thirsty all over again. That's how normal water works. What I'm offering you is a water that when you drink it, it puts something inside of you that becomes a producer of eternal satisfaction. You will never be thirsty again. When you receive this water that I have for you, you will never be thirsty again. Now, John 7, 38, Jesus is going to talk about living water again. And John, the writer, feels very compelled to tell us in one of his parentheses that when Jesus talks about living water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the very presence of God, that when you drink of it, the presence of God rests in you and it becomes a producing reservoir that we always have a satisfaction in us because the presence of God is with us. Peter writes in his second letter, in 2 Peter 1.3, that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Just writing, saying, look, everything that you could ever need, everything that you would ever want to have a life full of life and full of godliness is already in you through the promises of God. You have it. And Jesus is telling this woman, anybody that drinks of the water that I have, well, once they do that, they will never be thirsty again because this water, it becomes a well, a wellspring. Never stops producing. Okay, so the woman's starting to track just a little bit, but she still misses. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, what's the miss with this woman? 
The miss is, okay, I hear you talking about living water and never being thirsty again. I would love it if my needs were always met. And this is the reality of a roadblock that a lot of us have as we come to the gospel anticipating that our needs will always be met. That when Jesus talked about us never being thirsty again, it means that we will never be unhappy again, we'll never go poor, we'll never go without a meal, we'll never go thirsty in a physical sense, we will never be sad, nothing, never, nothing bad will ever happen to us ever again. And this woman is coming to Jesus and she's saying, okay, this message of the gospel sounds great. I'm interested. Can I have your water so that I don't have to come and fill up water at this well ever again? I would love to not have to come back here. Now we're starting to get into some of the shame elements of what this woman carries. I don't ever want to have to come back to this well. This is humiliating for me to come here every time when the other gals aren't here. I don't like this experience. I don't like standing exposed and different than the rest of the women. And Jesus knows that it's time to press. They're talking about water. And Jesus shifts gears and says in verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. All right, let's continue this conversation. Please go get your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, this is one of those interesting situations where Jesus has stepped into a supernatural place. He has no knowledge of this woman. He has never been through Samaria. He doesn't have uh, the, the experiences of Sychar cataloged in a book somewhere. This is not knowledge that Jesus has. He is breaking into some place that will help remove some of the roadblocks that this woman is experiencing. She tried to go to the history and the roots and say, no, we're good. I've already got water. And she tried to go to, okay, well, maybe if I could just get my needs met, then what you have is good enough. And, and Jesus is still, he's just trying to show her there's something different going on here. So he says, all right, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. We talked about Nathaniel a few weeks ago. Nathaniel was a man that... Uh, had a lot of doubts when his buddy Philip came and told him about the Messiah. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip just says, come and see. And so Nathaniel goes with his buddy Philip. He had enough trust in his buddy to go with him, but he comes as a skeptic. He comes as a doubter. He comes as one holding back saying, yeah, I don't think this is anything to speak of. And as he shows up, Jesus starts to speak prophetically into Nathaniel and he breaks through Nathaniel's skeptical walls and the same thing is happening with this woman. She's got all kinds of roadblocks up. Jesus says, go call your husband and she's still trying to keep that arm's length. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. Now, there are a couple of really important things to note about this. First of all, Jesus does not come back to this line anymore. He doesn't deal with it. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't challenge her. He doesn't even use it as a way to further the conversation. He just used it to break through in a moment, and she has entered into a different place. She says, okay, yeah, you, you got me. He says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. 
Now, we live in a, a fairly empowered culture where uh, women will oftentimes and very freely choose to divorce their husbands and leave them and, and move on from a relationship. That was not nearly the case in the first century. In the first century, women were often treated like property. And to have a woman that had been married five times and now was with a man that was not her husband, this is not the sign of a woman that has made the decision to leave five different men and is now with a man that is not her husband. This is more likely than not an abused woman that has been passed around the town from husband to husband and now is with a man that doesn't even make the effort to marry this woman. Our tendency can be to point the finger at this gal and just be like, oh yeah, she was just a sinful, adulterous, wicked woman. And the reality is there would be sin in her. But more likely than this woman being a prostitute or being a serial divorcee, this woman was an abused woman that had been dismissed time and time and time and time and time again. I don't know what emotions she was carrying when she says this, but she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Okay? There's something more to you than a Jewish guy that wants water from me and is getting into this weird conversation. You are a prophet. Now, to say this would mean that you have, you have an ear to what God is saying. I perceive that you are somebody that talks to God. And right there she realizes, actually, we have kind of a different understanding of God. And maybe we have to sort out why I can't even still listen to you. I get it, you're a prophet. But you believe fundamentally different things than what I believe. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. We have a fundamental difference of belief. We hold to Mount Gerizim as a holy site. You hold to Jerusalem as a holy site. Yes, you're a prophet, but I don't know where I can go with this conversation when really we just were different people who believe different things at a fundamental level. And this is one of those roadblocks. This is one of those places that we have to get to is when Jesus speaks into our story, do we have the humility? Do we have the readiness to say, okay, I might think fundamentally different than what the word of God is saying, but I want to align my heart because I see the power. I see that you have God and I need to adjust. But Jesus is still gonna help her get there. He responds and he says this, he said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Okay, this is pretty critical. Sorry, let me check my timing. Oh, I got a lot to say and not a lot of time to say it. Um, okay. She 
she comes to Jesus and says, there's a difference here. You guys believe one thing, we believe another. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something, that the time is coming where neither of our beliefs will be relevant any longer. The way that God meets with people is changing. We are moving past a location-based worship experience and into a person-based worship experience. Woman from Samaria, believe me, an hour is coming when Jerusalem will no longer matter and Gerizim will no longer matter. We are moving past temple worship. We are moving past a physical location. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was turning over tables and dumping out money and driving out animals? He said, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. They said, three days? It took 46 years to build the temple. Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. We are moving to a place where this is not about a physical location any longer. But God is changing what he's looking for from temple-based worship to now through salvation, you are going to look to the Son to worship the Father. You're going to look to me to worship the Father. Now this woman, just to to kind of, we're, we're shifting gears out of story number one and into story number two. This woman had everything against her. Right? The, the, the deck was stacked not in her favor. She was from Samaria. She was a woman. She was an abused woman, a disposed of woman that lived in a cloud of shame. But Jesus had told Nicodemus that whoever believes in him, anyone, would not perish. And John is showing us. I want to show you how far that goes. Watch this. The Father is seeking such people to worship him, people that will understand the true nature of worship. He's looking. He's seeking. The Father is out trying to find people, even here, even today, that will worship him in spirit and truth, that understand that it is not about a location. It is not about a temple. The temple is now Jesus and his church. The body of Christ is the temple that is being built up. There is a completely different understanding of the nature of how we relate to God that is taking shape. And Jesus is using this woman to help teach the transition out of Gerizim, out of Jerusalem, and into the Messiah. Because the reality is, this gospel message is going to go to every nation. We are not going to travel to Mecca any longer. We're not going to make these pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship any longer because the temple itself is Jesus himself. He is replacing the very foundation of the temple and establishing it in him and him alone. And Jesus is telling this woman, uh, true worshipers from this point forward, they're going to worship in spirit and truth. Let's talk about this for just a minute. God is spirit, and true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. So many things to say. I just want to take a brief minute and talk about this place, this physical location. We gather on Sunday mornings, but this has a distinct purpose. 
This is not where worship happens. And what Erica does here or Shannon does here or Kyle, our worship teams, what they do here, that is not the definition of worship at its very core. See, true worshipers will understand that what takes place at church on a Sunday morning, that's not the limiters of worship, but God is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. This is a beautiful expression. There are all kinds of reasons that we gather as a church, but this is not the new temple. We don't come here for a spiritual dose for the week. We don't come here for atonement for the week or for the month or for the year. We don't come here to expunge of our sins. We don't come here for any of those purposes any longer. The temple is not this place. You are the temple. And y'all are the temple. So some of the natural thinking has gone to this like, well, I, I don't really worship that well in a tent or in a building or with other people, I'm way better when I'm surfing. I'm way closer to God when I'm riding a wave. My house of worship is in the woods. It's in the forest. It's when I go to be alone and I can hear the birds and I can hear nothing but the sound of my feet on pine needles. I am close to God in those moments. That is spirit and truth. That's where I worship God. Have you heard people talk like this or have you felt this way before? Maybe even the, the converse is true where I don't mind going to church on Sunday, but honestly, it kind of gets in the way. It kind of gets in the way of worship. I have a hard time with the music. I don't like Matt's nasally voice. I get really frustrated with people wearing masks. I get really frustrated with people not wearing masks. I don't like the, the, the crowd. I don't like other people. I would rather just be by myself. That's where worship happens. Is that what Jesus is saying when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth? No, it's not. He is not saying that you are a better worshiper alone in the water. He's not saying that you're a better worshiper alone in the woods. But he's also saying the church is not the new temple, meaning the Sunday gathering is not the new house of worship, the new sanctuary, and the new holy of holies. That's not what this is. And if we've done anything to give you the impression that that's what this is, I apologize because that is not what this is. This is the gathering of the saints who come together to stir one another up to love and good works, to put gifts into action, to love one another well, to express our belief in the reality that Jesus is the head and we are the body and we are interdependent, knit together by the Holy Spirit. And so we come together as a family, as a body, as a household. These are the metaphors that the scriptures use to describe the church. And yes, we are a temple. But it is extremely clear that this thing is not the temple, but we, the people of God, are the temple being built up. So this is celebration. This is fun. This is joy. This is obedience because God told us to gather together, but it's for a different purpose. 
So what does that mean for the rest of your week? And that's what Jesus is telling this woman about true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. You are not a location-based worshiper anymore. Sunday morning expressions of worship are not the life of a worshiper as a follower of Jesus. But you carry in you this gift of God that is living water, that is a wellspring that bubbles up to satisfy you all the time. You carry with you the presence of God. You are the people of God who worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit, meaning he is anywhere and everywhere. And what is truth? Let's just go back to John 1. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth, meaning we are past a location-based worship and we are finding God who is spirit through the person of truth who is Jesus. That's how we worship. Jesus teaches this woman and tells her these amazing things. And he says that the Father is seeking such people. And in this, he kind of merges these two stories that I was telling about. The first one of a broken woman and the second one of changing the way we worship. And he comes back to her and he says, you broken, abused woman are loved by God. And the Father is seeking you. He's looking for you to worship him. He has journeyed from Jerusalem through the Judean wilderness to find you. I had to go through Samaria to find you, to tell you that the Father is seeking you to worship him in spirit and truth. So often when we read through this, we identify with Jesus and we're like, okay, evangelism 101, how do I tell the gospel? I'll do it the way that Jesus did it. But we need to read this story being the Samaritan woman. That God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And he's come to me and he said, will you? Will you worship me in spirit and truth? Will you give yourself fully to a different way of life where I put my presence in you and there's a wellspring that bubbles up and it's a satisfying thing. And so that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the overflow, it pours out of me. He anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. This wellspring that's in me pours out of me and it blesses and it worships and it speaks truth and it brings life because God is in me and God is with me. The disciples came back. We'll wrap up with this. I know there's a lot of verses, but they simply came back They decided not to say anything, but they were shocked at what they saw. 
Jesus takes a brief moment with them while the woman goes away to the village and he tells them, I want you to be ready for the harvest. I'm here to plant some seeds and I'm going to send you out into the harvest. What we're doing here is sowing and reaping. We're putting the seeds of the gospel in the ground and you are going to be sent to reap this harvest of the gospel that people who believe will be drawn into the kingdom of God. He's telling them to prepare themselves for the work of the mission of God. And then the woman comes back with the townspeople that she's gone to find. And they want to hear from Jesus. They ask him to stay with them. Samaritans knew the rules, but clearly this guy's fine breaking them. Jesus, would you come and crash in our town for a couple of days? He stays with them for two days. And ministers, preaches the gospel to the point where when Jesus is getting ready to leave, they say this. They're like, okay. At first, it was the woman's testimony that you prophesied, that you broke through, that you told her everything she ever did. And that was a huge thing for us. We know her. And the fact that you knew her too, that was blowing us away. But we no longer just believe because of her testimony. We believe because of what you've taught us, that you are indeed the Savior of the world. This is one of those wild sermons, you guys, where I desperately need to wrap it up because there's a lot of kids up there and very few volunteers taking care of them. And I missed literally the most important verse of this entire passage when Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. The woman said, we know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus said, yeah, that's me. Everything that the Bible has ever taught about salvation, Jesus is saying, it's me. Every religion in this world that that seeks, the only way they're going to find God is through me. I I am the gift of God, the access point to a relationship with God. But I also want to show you that literally anyone who looks at me will be healed. Anyone who opens their eyes to see the goodness of God through the Son of God will be saved. Anyone and everyone. Truly, Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. Father, thank you for just giving us such grace to to learn from and see this unbelievable story. Lord, I pray for those in this uh, tent that, that have those various roadblocks, things in the way of believing that you are the Christ. I just, I, I genuinely pray that you would be chipping away at those every single time they hear the gospel preached. Lord, would those roadblocks be coming down one after another? And for those of us that would identify as Christians, people that have given our lives to you, yet we still have these walls up in the way of just of releasing ourselves completely to you, of saying, I, I get what you're trying to do with me, and I want to submit to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be chipping away at those one by one, just removing any hesitation from your people coming to you fully and completely and saying, I worship you. I give you my all. I belong to you. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. 
Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for your deep compassion and your heart of invitation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.